Hello and welcome to the Exorcism Podcast. If you are looking to get really good at programming, then this is just the podcast for you. Being a phenomenal programmer is about so much more than just knowing a coding language. It's about being able to solve problems, understand the best tools to solve the problems with, and think things through with clarity. Thank you for joining. There's lots of people uh, turning, tuning into this. It's really exciting to have everyone here. Um, so firstly, a couple of introductions. Um, this session is part of Exism's Functional February, which is part of our 12 and 23 campaign, um, which is encouraging people to try 12 different programming languages throughout uh, 2023. Um, Today, we're joined by um, Jose Valim, who is the creator of Elixir, which we're super excited about. Um, towards the end of this session, there's going to be an opportunity for you to have your questions put to him. So if you do have any questions, uh, please put them on either YouTube or on Twitch, both of which are being monitored, um, and those questions will filter their way through to me. So just to start with some introductions, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Jeremy Walker. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Exism. If you're not an Exism member, we're a free learning platform, um, encouraging people, helping people improve their programming skills. I think we have 67 different programming languages that we teach now. Um, everything's free. We're a non-for-profit open source organization. Um, so please just come along, join in and have fun. I also just want to shout out to everyone that's donated to Exism so far during 12 and 23 super grateful we entirely rely on donations for our survival and to grow and to provide things like this so if you're finding exism useful please consider donating if you can and if you have donated already thank you very much so let's move into the important things jose so jose uh, chief uh, adoption officer at dashbit uh, he used to be rails core um, but most importantly and the reason everyone's here to to watch this is that he is the creator of elixir hi jose how are you doing i'm doing great thank you awesome awesome um so um we're gonna be talking about elixir today that's the main focus of this. Um, I'm really talking about it from a, a functional perspective. So this is functional February Exism. We're looking at functional languages. Elixir is one of the most popular functional languages out there. Um, people love it. Our track is one of our, our best tracks in Exism. People use it to learn all the time. Um, and so we're going to dig into the functional side of things a little bit, looking at how it's affected Elixir, its growth, its adoption. Um, and we're also going to talk a little bit about the future of Elixir, both as a programming language and, and also the, the ecosystem around there. Um, and then finally, as I said, we're going to be able to put, we're going to be putting questions towards Jose. So if you have questions, um, please do ask them on YouTube or Twitch. So uh, let's dive straight in. So first overarching big question, why did you choose to make uh, Elixir a functional language? What was your motivation? How has it uh, affected things? Um, especially coming from a, a background where you were such a core Ruby programmer, um, how is, uh, what sort of made you want to change to a more functional world? Yeah, so uh, there is a long story. I'll try to summarize it, but I was... Um you know, 20 years ago, uh, not 20 years ago, sorry, uh, 12 years ago about we are starting to hear, uh, I was starting to hear more and more the story like, oh, concurrency is going to become important because uh, the machines, they're not getting much faster anymore. And now we're starting to have machines with more cores. And today I say like, even your like 
wrist watch has like four cores, right? And then I was like, well, if this thing is going to be the future, I want to write software that is going to be concurrent by default, right? Mm-hmm. I want to have something that is going to use all the cores on my machine. And then there's even like uh, f- funny anecdotes where people say like, oh, my test suite is slow. And then I'm like, okay, how many cores are you using while your test suite runs? They're like, one. And they're like, <laughs> sure, right? Like you could potentially make it, make it four, eight times faster uh, and you're not like, oh, compilation is low. Okay, how many cores compilation is using? So I was like, okay, if concurrency, this 12 years ago, if concurrency is going to become important, uh, I want to rely on this more. And I was working with Ruby at the time and uh, I was really struggling to, to like, uh, write the software that is concurrent or prove that the software is going to not have concurrency bugs. Sometimes we would have reports like when I deploy a new version of this app, like we have an autoscaler that is going to deploy new versions of this app when we have a spike. But when we are deploying a new version of the app, when there is a spike, there is an error. And this error would basically happen because you are deploying a new version and a lot of things start to request it at the same time. And it triggers a particular code path that made things go wrong. And then I'm like, how how I'm going to like test this? How I'm going to reproduce this? Or even how I'm going to fix and make sure that the fix is good. So I was like, I started first as a journey. Like I want to kind of like, figure out how other people, other communities are writing concurrent software. And I say that in this journey, there were like no two points of no return where it changed my, completely changed my approach of writing software or the way I want to write software. And the first one was when I found functional programming. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, uh, so one of the issues that we have is that we have the so-called like data races, when you're writing concurrent software. So imagine that you have like an object, for example, that object, it lives in memory. It's somewhere in memory. But what happens if you have like two cores trying to change the same place in memory? They are going to conflict, right? They can corrupt the data structure. You can get a segmentation fault. Like things can go wrong in different ways. Uh, Or then people try to be like very, like very, preventive and not mm-hmm. allow two threads to change at the mm-hmm. same time. But now everything, uh, I'm getting out of focus. Hold on. <laughs> I'm still out of focus. I need to, what is this magic? You're, you've got too technical for your camera. Your camera can't cope with everything that you're saying. It would be great, wouldn't it, if this is some threading bug or something? Like, it's probably not, but it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if this is a concurrency bug? Just display yeah. there you go, you're back in, perfect. Yeah, I have I have to turn it uh, uh, off and on, which is another great story. We can come back to it later. <laughs> We're probably going to come back to it later. Um, so, I, so I will. So, the first point of no return was when I was like, well. One of the issues that I had was like data races have two mm-hmm. things trying to change the same place in memory at mm-hmm. the same time, right? So, you know, you can have all kinds of issues and you can put a lock around it, but then everything gets slow. And then, uh, and when I learned functional programming, functional programming can mean like different things to different people. Mm-hmm. But for me, like the crucial thing was immutability. And basically, mm-hmm. the idea is if I have a list, right? and I want to delete something from the list, instead of going and changing the list in memory, I'm going to create a new list without mm-hmm. that element. That's the main idea to me, mm-hmm. right? It's immutability. I'm not changing things in memory anymore. I'm not changing things in place. I'm creating new ones 
all mm-hmm. the time. Um, and then I was like, this is perfect because <laughs> if I was writing the software, if this, all the software that I was writing, if I was writing based on this idea, all the data race issues that I have been fighting with, they're just gone. They just disappear. Yeah. And I like to say, like, this is the best way of solving your problem because, like, you can have a problem, then you can, like, work around it, add a solution. But yeah. if we can remove the problem altogether, right, the mm-hmm. problem does not exist in the first mm-hmm. place, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, uh, functional programming, I mean. And then with time, I actually realized that functional programming, uh, it's not only about the concurrency aspect, it makes my software uh, easier to understand because when I'm working Ruby, JavaScript, in Python, I call like a, I call a method, and that method can change like the whole world around you by like changing the object that has the object. Uh, Joe Armstrong, one of the creators of Erlang, he has like a a, 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 a funny quote where he says like in object oriented programming, uh, you think you got a banana, but actually what you got was the banana, the um, the gorilla holding the banana and then the whole jungle holding the gorilla, <laughs> right? Like you always yeah. have everything. And then I realize, look, everything that I call, if I call a function, so you're not calling methods anymore, uh, mm-hmm. you're calling functions, it cannot change the world around me. All mm-hmm. the changes that it can do, it has to explicitly return them. Mm-hmm. So it's like everything explicitly in, everything explicitly out. Mm-hmm. And that makes it so much easier to understand software, to understand the code, because, you know, there is no, like, I'm asking the banana and getting the jungle. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so to me, that was like, we can talk more about the second point of no return later. Uh, mm-hmm. But to me, that was like, so functional, why Elixir is functional programming? It's, it's mm-hmm. more like, you know, Elixir exists because of functional programming. If there was yeah, no functional programming, there would not be Elixir because mm-hmm. it was like this, very big change of paradigm to me. And was it um, was it Erlang that you sort of discovered functional programming through, or was it a different functional language? What was that? What was that That's for you? The perfect segue because it leads exactly <laughs> to the second point of no return, which was I was like, okay, functional programming. I mean, I'm sold. And okay. then I started to look at like a bunch of functional programming languages. I studied Clojure, Haskell, mm-hmm. Scala, really like trying to mm-hmm. uh, absorb things, absorb ideas. And then I got to Erlang and I got mm-hmm. really fascinated about mm-hmm. Erlang because, uh, and that was the second point of no return. It was the point I said like, look, I want to write software that mm-hmm. runs on the Erlang virtual machine. And the reason mm-hmm. is if you go back 12 years ago, all the languages that were popping up at the time, Clojure, Go, uh, Swift was a little bit later, but pretty much like all languages popping up, they had a concurrency story. Mm-hmm. They were saying, look, we are going to have channels, we are going to have like async. Everybody was focusing on the concurrency story. Mm-hmm. And Erlang, so for those who are not familiar, Erlang, it's like, it's a language and it's also a runtime. Like in Java, we have the Java language and the Java virtual machine. So we have the Erlang language and the Erlang virtual machine. And um, and it, it was created by Ericsson, uh, which is a telecommunication company in the 80s. So it mm-hmm. exists for quite some time. Uh, and what is really interesting is that in the 80s, because if you think of telecommunication company, they were building telephone switches. What a telephone mm-hmm. switch needs to do is to be able to connect like millions yeah. of people talking and exchanging information mm-hmm. at the same time. 
which by mm -hmm. the way, it's very similar to how the web works today. It's so like that's, sockets, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's but that's a separate yeah. conversation, right? Yeah, and so what they did is that they solved the concurrency issue like three decades ago. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. Well, if you have a problem and you are trying to to solve that problem or make that problem as efficient as possible, you want to use all the power that your machine has. So if it mm -hmm. has eight cores, you want to use eight cores. But what happens when one machine is not enough, mm -hmm. right? What do you need? You need another machine, right? Mm -hmm. So your problem, your software now is no longer concurrent. It has to be distributed. It has mm -hmm. to... to to work on multiple machines. And that's what Erlang did. And Erlang right. did it like in the 80s, right? right? And they did in a way where the programming model uh, where that you get concurrency is the same programming model as distribution. So it's mm -hmm. the same abstraction. And I found mm -hmm. that fascinating. I, I like mm -hmm. to say that for Erlang developers, like um, concurrency is a special case of distribution where everything mm -hmm happens to run on a single machine, mm. right? So it's very easy for you to get some code and say, hey, now I want to run this on multiple machines. It's not like, oh, mm. I have to redesign my software. It's like, no, you change a couple of things around. It's like, mm -hmm. boom, it's running on uh, on on, uh, on multiple machines. Like uh, even this weekend, I was working on something for, we are working on like, we can go back to this. We're working on like numerical computations. Mm -hmm. So you can run things on the GPU. Mm -hmm. And today I added the feature that if you have a machine and you connect like eight other machines, each of them uh, with like two GPUs, we can mm -hmm. now like load balance the work between mm -hmm. them. Nice. And the whole implementation with tests and mm -hmm. docs was mm -hmm. 400 lines of code, right? Wow. Which is pretty like absurd, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. So, uh, and that's why, like, I, I still get excited today. Like, I've been yeah. doing Erlang for like, uh, yeah. you know, like uh, 12 years. Uh, yeah. And I still get very excited talking about those things because I really think it was like ahead of its time back then. Yeah. And it still is today. So, and, I mean, that, that's the direction, isn't it? Like, you know, you talk there about numerical elixir, but you know, everything with machine learning is about processing bigger and bigger data sets as quickly as possible. It's that reinforcement learning of constantly cycling through that data, which is by nature going to be a distributed process. So if you're able to think in that in that concurrent first way almost. Um, so why why not just use Erlang? What was the what made you think I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna reinvent the wheel? Yeah, so I like to say that my relationship with Erlang is that I loved everything uh, I saw, but I really missed some things. Mm. Um, and we can go into details, but I really miss like uh, polymorphism and mm -hmm. more expressive tools for doing metaprogramming. That mm -hmm. I was like, you know, like I'm I'm going to try to like write my own language. And at the mm -hmm. beginning, I started only with the purpose of like. I wanted to learn more Erlang and, and get more practice. So right, besides okay. doing projects, I was like, I'll write my own language as a way mm -hmm. of learning both how to write a programming language because I don't have like the, the, the proper background and mm -hmm. also to learn more about the platform. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then eventually like a year later, I was like, you know what? I think there's something here. And that's when mm -hmm. I started like working on Elixir for real, the Elixir that we know today. And thinking, digging in a little bit to Elixir and some of the, 
design decisions you made in there. Um, so one of the big things is it, it being a dynamic language rather than a, a static language. Um, and, you know, coming from something like Ruby, which is, you know, feels very, well, it's very dynamic in the way it works. Um, that's obviously something that probably felt quite natural to you. But um, it's something that, you know, I think people see a lot of pros and cons with. It's some people find, you know, things like TypeScript have become super um, popular. What what led you to that decision? Is it a decision you reflect on you're pleased with, like trade-offs? Yeah, that whole area. Yeah, so... Um Elixir is dynamic because there's the short, short answer is that Elixir is dynamic because Erlang is dynamic. Okay. Uh, there were at some point throughout Elixir development where I was like, look, if the goal of Elixir is to be as compatible with the platform as possible, mm-hmm. I want to stay as close to the platform as possible. Mm-hmm. And I also think like uh, if if we were wor- if I was working on a type, if I went to add a type system, uh, it would probably delay, have delayed like Elixir's growth mm-hmm. by like three or four years, not because mm-hmm. of the type system, but because I did not know and I still right. do not know how to write a type system. And mm-hmm. that's a complex part. part. Mm-hmm. And But the thing is like, so we can, we, if we say, look, it's because of, of Erlang, mm-hmm. right? And then, and then we can ask then why Erlang is... Mm-hmm. Uh, is dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. And if you talk to Erlang creators, uh, they, you know, when they wrote the Erlang language and Erlang runtime, they had a very specific. They know they knew exactly what they wanted. They mm-hmm. wanted to write like the telephone switches, those platforms, really focus on telecom. And they said, they said, look, I don't think a type system. But put in perspective, it's back in the eighties. But they were like, mm-hmm. I don't think a type system is going to to help us necessarily achieve the properties that we wanted. Mm-hmm. Because what they were building is that they were building systems that had to be highly concurrent, had to be distributed, and it had to to be also scalable. They were looking for very specific properties. But mm-hmm. also, like, when you are installing, like, a telephone switch, you may have to go, like, in the middle of nowhere to install that thing. And you want to be able to... Uh, debug that thing remotely, upgrade mm-hmm. the code remotely. So they had all those requirements, right? Mm-hmm. And they had to balance those things. They're like, also mm-hmm. like, you know, we want a system that I can upgrade in production, but it also has to be stable in development, mm-hmm. right? So they were thinking about all those things and where the trade-offs should be. And the things that if you're building, uh, so when it comes to think about failures, what can go wrong in the software? Mm-hmm. They're like, look, we are building a distributed system. Mm-hmm. Like we are talking on the socket all the time. We are reading from trial. There, there is no like type system that is going to prevent us from mm-hmm. these sorts of errors. Because mm-hmm. look, it's you know the cable may go broke, right? Like the yeah, yeah. cable may just stop working, yeah. right? We can have a hardware fault. They were thinking mm-hmm. about all those things. So what they did is that they focused on writing uh, a language and a platform that is fault tolerant, that can self-heal. In mm-hmm. case something goes wrong, that system can heal itself and go back to a working state, mm-hmm. which now the camera example is perfect. My camera mm-hmm. went out yeah. of focus, right? How did I fix my camera? I turned it on, yeah. I turned it off and on. I restarted the system because mm-hmm. when you restart the system, you go back to this initial state that you've tested, 
Like that's what the manufacturer tested because if the thing does not even turn on, nobody's going to buy it. And they mm-hmm. applied that to software, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, they say like, well, you know, like Kubernetes has very similar ideas, right? But Kubernetes is at a very high level. Now, imagine if you get those ideas and apply it to everything, apply to uh, your connection pool, right? All the communication, you have to do everything you have to manage. It's all mm-hmm. at the language level. So that's mm-hmm. what they focused on, right? So they, they were focused on solving those problems, make a system that is resilient to failures. And the way they realize that they're going to be resilient to failure is not trying to prevent all the possible failures because mm-hmm. you cannot possibly prevent all possible mm-hmm. failures. You should make a system that when something wrong happens, they will know how to restart and go back to a working state. It's, it's really fascinating to me to think about, say, the adoption of a language like Rust, which is the opposite. You know, it's like compiler, which is trying to make sure that everything is is perfect. It's like the opposite end of that philosophy, as opposed to a philosophy of your code will suck. Something will go wrong at some point, whether it's your fault or the rat chewing through the cable's fault. Um, I think that's a, yeah, fascinating. Go on. Yeah, and, and I don't think, and, and, and that's the interesting part, I don't think they are excluding approaches. No. Right, um, you can have both. So we are mm-hmm. investing in typing research, uh, mm-hmm. so we can make Elixir like we can add uh, a type system to Elixir, mm-hmm. and I think that will put Elixir into a, like a very unique position because mm-hmm. it's going to be a platform like other languages like that run on the Erlang virtual machine that mm-hmm. is really giving you both types of guarantees. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that. Um, People tend to, this is a longer discussion, but I also think that people like tend to, to overplay the, 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 ben- the, the benefits of type systems. Mm-hmm. It's not that mm-hmm. it doesn't have a benefit. It has mm-hmm. many benefits, but people tend to be overconfident on what their types are going to guarantee. Mm-hmm. Right. And I like to give like the, the, the example that I like to give that always like trip people, like get the Boolean or operator, mm-hmm. right? So it's like it receives true or false or receives true or false. It's going to return true or false. Mm-hmm. Like the type in most programming language is going to be if it receives a Boolean or a Boolean, it returns a Boolean, yeah. right? I can provide so many wrong implementations of mm-hmm. this function okay. <laughs> that matches the type Right. So that's one example. And then it yeah. goes to the other example of like of a distributed system and having failures that you can have in an actual system. And here's mm-hmm. like the flash news, like uh, uh, pretty much all the systems that everybody's running nowadays, they are distributed systems because mm-hmm. you have to talk to a database, right? Mm-hmm. That's a distributed yeah. system. Yeah. You have to talk to an API. That's a distributed mm-hmm. system. So I think like, uh, so I think types are super valuable, especially in the terms of like, uh, allowing the software to grow mm-hmm. and helping the developer and uh, being preemptive, preemptive in finding mm-hmm. flaws. But I think like if you're relying only on that, on that, you are still going to be caught by surprise. Certainly yeah. fewer times, if you're uh, fewer times are going to be caught by surprise and if you don't have any types at all, yeah. right? But you do need the fallback like, hey, is my system going to recover from failures or from mm-hmm. unexpected things? Because mm-hmm. those will certainly happen. Mm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I've heard people people say that having types and, and static typing makes you 
lazier because you have that confidence that because it compiles or because there's not errors, it works. And I don't know if I agree with that necessarily, but I think it, there is a sense of security it gives you that maybe is a full sense of security that just because something compiles doesn't mean it works. And yeah. Yeah, there's like this common uh, saying is like people say like, oh, if I have types, I can write like fewer tests. Mm-hmm. And then and then I don't agree with this at all. And then no. I, I'm like, well, it's going to be true for like some very specific type systems, by the way, but mm-hmm. not like the generally speaking type yeah. systems. And then, and then I'm like, well, if you feel like your tests can be replaced by a type system, like, please, just throw out those tests because they're <laughs> not really testing anything that is useful, yeah. right? Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, you're not testing functionality at that stage with your tests in the first place. Um so it was interesting when you said, you know, functional languages mean mean different things to different people. Um, and obviously, immutability is one of the, the, the key things to you. Now, we've been looking at different functional languages throughout the month. I've spent a lot of time chatting to Eric about all of the different ones we have on Xism. And a lot of functional languages, certainly say, I don't know, F-sharp, you can, you know, choose whether a, ver- well, whether a binding is mutable or immutable. You know, it's immutable by default, but you can add the mutable word. Now, I imagine things like that, from what you've said, you very much didn't want to bring into to Elixir. Were there, were there other sort of functional concepts or things that other functional languages did that you sort of deliberately wanted to stay away from when you were when you were creating Elixir? I don't think so. So there is one that uh, more like uh, functional programming, Axonados, they are going to, they find another language is like Curring and this mm-hmm. side of functional programming that mm-hmm. it's not possible in Elixir because of, mm-hmm. of some choices in the Erling virtual machine. So people that are like uh, really uh, looking for that kind of approach, they're going to find mm-hmm. it missing. But I feel like we make out like, I feel in a way it's like it's positive because, for example, uh, like where a Haskell programmer will do some kind of like dot notation, they call it like fixed point, I think, or mm-hmm. put point free, maybe. Yeah, for sure. They have like some kind of notation, uh, but it reads backwards. Like in yeah. Elixir, we have the pipeline operator that people mm-hmm. absolutely love. Um, so, you know, maybe not having certain features, we could focus on the usability from other yeah. sides and try to approach the problem in a different way. Um, that I think it's like, you know, uh, at the end, I'm I'm happy with how, with how things went. It's like, we got a limitation, but we're, we're able to make something good out yeah. of it in a way. Are there any things that if you could turn the clock back, you would do differently? There, there are definitely, but I... I I don't like I don't keep those things on top of my head. You know, mm-hmm. it's like sometimes it sends me like in in in, in rabbit holes. It's like somebody mm-hmm. people say like, oh, what if that what if that thing changed? And then I'm like, mm. you know, it's like you know that meme with like the mathematics. I, I'm like, yeah. oh, you know, and then and then it's kind of. But the thing is, like, I like to say like a, a programming like writing a programming language. It's like Jenga. It's mm-hmm. like if I take a piece, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, and put something in place, it's not mm-hmm. like, oh, it's very unlikely that everything is going to fit the same, mm-hmm. you, you know? So, like, doing a small change, like, mm-hmm. uh, changes um, a lot of things. It has everything. a really yeah. big impact. So, for yeah. example, one of the things that we got from, uh, so maybe this would be considered uh, 
a regret, but I think we're able to improve it with time. So one of the things that we got from uh, Ruby was the optional parentheses. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the and when you add that kind of flexibility at the syntax mm-hmm. level, it mm-hmm. imposes choices mm-hmm. in other places, and we have to we have to consider that. And it mm-hmm. inter- it introduces ambiguity in many places, but we have addressed those with time. Like uh, so, for example, if you have like foo. Like mm-hmm. in Ruby, that can either be a variable foo or a function called to foo. Mm-hmm. But now we decided, like basically the community said, we don't want this ambiguity. And now mm-hmm. we warn if you have something written as a variable, but uh, but it's actual function call. So yeah. if you don't pass any argument, um, the the parentheses they are not optional. So our parentheses they are like mm-hmm. almost always optional. Okay. But in our case, it's kind of fine because in Elixir, remember, because all the inputs have to come in and all outputs have to go out. Yeah. You almost never have functions. I mean, you do have, but it's not very common to have functions that receive zero arguments yeah. because yeah. it means that they are not okay. working on anything. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. How is um. How has your like relationship with with Ruby changed? Um, like, obviously, you were very you know you're a well known Ruby programmer. You wrote books and things. Like, what's the? Do you ever use Ruby now? Could you go back to it? Like, uh, yeah. Um, no, I, I haven't. I haven't like followed much of what has happened with Ruby. Mm-hmm. I have followed like the work uh, of some people that uh, we are still friends, like Rafael França mm-hmm. and uh, Aaron Patterson, Tender Love. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes like I see that they did an awesome contribution to the compiler, made things faster, and then uh, we go geek out on those things. Yeah. It's very funny because like after I created Elixir, I was very... Uh, kindly invited to speak at Ruby Kaigi and had the opportunity to to visit Japan. Did I drop for a while? You or... I was trying to work out if it was me that dropped or if it was you that dropped, but I think it yeah, was you. Yeah. I, you so, I got to the bit where you said um, you were very kindly invited to, and then you left us hanging where you were invited. <laughs> yeah, I was invited to Japan to speak at Ruby Kaigi, which is like, oh, I nice. think it's the main Ruby uh-huh. event. Uh, and, and it, um, and then uh, I've uh, and then I was invited to like uh, other Ruby events like Ruby Taiwan and Elixir. They made a joint one at some point, nice. and it was very funny because like I would meet uh, members of the the Ruby team like Google uh, mm-hmm. Bun, and we would spend like the whole night just like geeking on yeah. uh, compiler stuff. We're like yeah. we'll be trading cards in the sense of like yeah. oh <laughs> we do this optimization and this optimization and then they're like oh we do this one and do this one we would take yeah. notes yeah. and then see how we could optimize. Uh, Coco Bun he 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 taught he taught me one optimization and then I went home I worked on the thing like the whole night and mm-hmm. it made like certain code paths like 80 times faster. And I was like yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, that's the, the intent that I follow uh, Ruby, but like to be honest, I'm not sure if I would be able to to go back. Um, yeah. Mostly on the point of the immutability part, I mm-hmm. feel like writing software that where everything is immutable by default, it just takes like it gives me space back from my brain. And that's the thing mm-hmm. that uh, I really struggle when going back to a language. I don't want to be like those people. Oh, you know, like 
Yeah. Right? But like it's a personal thing for me yeah. in the sense that when I when I look at a code and everything is immutable by default, I know that I don't have to like there are a lot of questions that I don't have to answer. And now when yeah. I go to like immutable code when I'm writing JavaScript, it's like I'm paranoid. I'm like, I'm going to call this method. But what yeah. is it going to change? Right? <laughs> I'm paranoid all the time. It's like yeah. I'm looking under the carpet, like opening mm-hmm. the doors, mm-hmm. the windows, like, you know, what is happening here? Yeah. And uh, that state of mind of, of like that bliss of like, I don't have to care. Everything is explicit. It's something yeah. that I, you know, for me, it's, it's very hard to give up. So if somebody was going to move from from Ruby and they wanted to adopt Elixir, which I know is a path for a lot of people, what would you what would you recommend maybe as either the the mental transformation they need to go through or the way they approach that? How would you what would that journey look like if you were just chatting to a Ruby dev who wanted to take up Elixir? Uh, I'm not sure. I would say go do some exercise on exercise, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, good answer. I like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, like, uh, we have, so somebody asked, uh, like, you know, uh, how do we, like, how to get started with the language? Mm-hmm. We have, we have, uh, we have a getting started guide on the website, mm-hmm. which we always keep up to date. But mm-hmm. we have been very lucky of having, like, a very, like, uh, passionate community uh, right. that you know is working on other materials, other mm-hmm. books, courses, like the whole exorcism track. Mm-hmm. I feel I think like when the new version of Exorcism launched, like Elixir was like kind of the second language or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of it's one of our best tracks. I think we have like a thousand people a day learning Elixir through Exorcism oh, wow. now. It's like a lot of people. So yeah, yeah, and and I and I think like it's kind of like. Um, and as you do the exercise, I think you are going like to grasp that concept of like, mm-hmm. oh, everything has to be explicit because like sometimes, like if you're coming from Python, for example, where mm-hmm. you do like a list append, it appends mm-hmm. something to the list, but it doesn't return anything. It mm-hmm. mutates the list in place. So it's very mm-hmm. common at the beginning when you're learning Elixir, when you're coming from other languages, I will call like list append. Yeah. And then you access the list variable and you're like, wait, where are the things it's that the things, are just yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, but I think like with time you get into this mindset of like, okay, everything goes in, everything yeah. comes out. Right. And it's a matter of practice. And I, I feel like for most people, when it clicks, like it mm-hmm. really clicks, it's like, it yeah. forms like that bond where I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I want this. Yeah, we're um, we're building a, a total learn to code from scratch course exism at the moment. Um, it's like a, a long term project, but and we're building our own programming language as part of that. That's just aimed around education. But one of the things that we're doing is putting really nice um, like animated videos together as well for the for the different um, the different features to learn. And that's been one of the things we've talked about a lot. And we feel is like. One of the things that if you can get across to like a total beginner straight up, having this idea of almost like a little machine and you put stuff in the top and stuff comes out the bottom. And it's like, if you can just get that paradigm in people's heads that, because, you know, we've, we've spoken to people who have been trying to learn to code for six months, 12 months, and still the idea of like, you have a function that takes like parameters and, and returns them. It still feels fuzzy. It still feels confusing. And I think, it, you know, actually a lot of people don't start with pure functional programming, start with other things and then have to learn that paradigm. I sort of feel like if you can be really comfortable and familiar with that on day one and then learn everything else after that, I suspect it's a much easier way of learning to code and, and understanding those those things. Um, 
Uh, okay. Jeremy, um, I know that the the like the uh, the ask me anything thing is at the end, yeah. but a very good question came in. I mean, a lot yeah. of good questions came in, yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, there is sure. one yeah. that I think uh, it's very much related to our discussion, and I think it's yeah. going to be very educational, uh, which is. Um, what is the benefit of support immutability? Like, why doesn't everyone make immutability a default? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, I cannot speak for everyone, uh, and I'm going to give, like, my interpretation of things. Mm -hmm. So the thing that I like to say, like, um, do you know, like, uh, there was a paper that introduced the idea of garbage collection. Mm -hmm. Do you know when that paper was written? I'm going to guess... Mm. I'm going to guess before I was born, like let's say late seventies or something. I don't know. Yeah, it was uh, it was the paper that introduced Lisp uh, by John McCarthy right, okay. from fifty, eighty, sixty. Wow. Okay. And it took like three decades mm. for like garbage collection to eventually become mainstream mm -hmm. because most people at the time like didn't have a lot of memory. So we're like, you mm -hmm. know, I want to be like really tidy with my memory, yeah. right? And how things are allocated. You don't leave something around for it to pick up later it's yeah yeah and for me it's the same uh, the same thing happened with immutability like if before we're like oh every time we have a list right like let's just you know uh let's create a new one back then it would be like okay no that's you know that sounds fantastic but you mm -hmm. know it's uh, uh this thing is not going to be ideal for writing software mm -hmm. so, uh, so in the same way where today we can like you know i want to stay at the high level and mm -hmm. I don't care about like manually managing memory. Mm -hmm. I'm totally fine with like, you know, I just want everything to be mutable. And mm -hmm. even like in the last uh, 20 years, there still have been progress on how to make like immutable data structures as mm -hmm. efficient as possible. Because like if you have a complex data structure, you don't mm -hmm. want to every time, like imagine they have a dictionary. And you remove a key or update a key. You don't want to copy everything, yeah. right? So there are like very efficient approaches, mm -hmm. right? Of like, oh, I'm just going to copy like part of the tree and then have a bunch of pointers. And mm -hmm. some of those have been developed like recently. Um, so, you know, there has been progress to make like immutability more mm -hmm. mainstream. Um, but the other thing that I also love to give as an example is that uh, about like the other things that immutability also helps a lot for mm -hmm. compilers to optimize mm -hmm. and make our code faster. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is just you can ask most of the programming languages why mm -hmm. strings are immutable. Like most programming mm -hmm. languages, like the strings that you have in the code, they are all immutable. Like in Java, mm -hmm. in Python, Ruby made the change yeah. because knowing that things are not going to change actually allows yeah. you to be really smart and do mm -hmm. interesting stuff with it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think I think that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of like yeah, the story yeah. of mutability versus immutability and how it has been changing throughout the years. In the, um, in the video that... Uh, I did with Eric about introducing functional February. 
one of the examples I think I think it was in that video he gave was that he did Advent of Code last year in F Sharp, and so he would do it all using immutable types to start, and then he would change some of them to mutable, and it would get so much faster just because the moment they became mutable, like the level of optimization that the compiler could do became faster. And so, I mean, Eric is the biggest fan I know of mutability. Like you two could just chat about it all day, but um, but that was the you know the performance trade off of mutability was it still it could be faster at this stage. So I guess that's um, why mutability is still baked into languages because it does give optimization. But like you say, as more and more ideas are unpicked and discovered, I imagine that will that will increasingly even out over time. Uh, yeah, and, and but there's something that is also worth talking about is mm-hmm. that uh, if you have like very high performance problems, mm-hmm. uh, like data parallelism problems, like I have a bunch of mm-hmm. data and I have like, if you're doing analytics, or mm-hmm. if you're doing like machine learning stuff, like immutability is not going mm-hmm. to, to fly. But yeah. here's the thing. Um, usually when you're working on those things, you usually want to stay at the high level. Like, so for mm-hmm. example, if I want to do analytics, you can, you're thinking, look, uh, I'm writing a SQL, for example, which is like a declarative mm-hmm. language. There's no state in there, right? Like you can think of it like, yeah, from the SQL level perspective, everything is immutable, functional mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and that's the other thing. So we recently started this effort called like numerical elixir. And, uh, and the idea is that you can, so for example, uh, machine learning, they're basically like really, really large matrices, like really large tensors. So if you get an image, you can think it's a three-dimensional tensor where you have the, the width, the height, and then the channels like RGB, alpha, this kind of stuff, right? So it's like three-dimensional and a bunch of data in there. That's how we would model this stuff. And yeah, if you're going to like do operations in this stuff, and mm-hmm. it's and if it's immutable, like I want to change a pixel, it copies the whole mm-hmm. image, right? It's not mm-hmm. going to be good. But the thing is, what we do is that we allow you to express the computations mm-hmm. that you're going to do in an image. You can mm-hmm. express everything that you're going to do, and then you give that to us. We compile it to run on the CPU or the GPU just in time. We go and compile. And then we put the image through there. And, mm. and here's the interesting part. When you're writing like this computation that is expressing how you're going to change things, mm. like being immutable actually helps a lot. So mm. like, for example, so one of the libraries that we are using uh, is Polars, where the way you're expressing, it's a, a Rust library that people have also been mentioning in the chat. When you're mm-hmm. expressing the computations, a lot of the time, the focus on having everything immutable Right, mm-hmm. and then you express all the computations. You collapse into something that is mutable and run it. The same mm-hmm. thing with our machine learning stuff. Like we, you build like this whole like m- neural network thing, and uh, when you are building it, everything is immutable. Yeah. And then at the end, we compile it to something that it's also input in, output out. But inside, it can mutate. Mm-hmm. It can do everything you don't care about, and that can be very efficient. So mm-hmm. I also think like there is like this interesting trade-off like for me like the ideal place is pretty much that it's like yeah at the high level i want immutability Mm -hmm. i want uh garbage collection i don't want to Mm -hmm. care about this stuff 
right? And sure, at the at the at the low level, we may need to say like, oh no, I need mutability, and mm-hmm. oh no, like I need to manage memory. But yeah. most of the time, uh, I'm going to be more productive and more expressive uh, when I am at that high level, and that's where I prefer yeah. to be. So, talking more about. Um numeric elixir or nx as it's known um so you've already sort of eaten up the ruby world by creating elixir and stealing all of the best ruby devs um is is your next step of your plan now to steal all the best python devs and to to take those into elixir as well is this your your next step on world domination um no i actually i i um not I, I'm generally not an ambitious person. I don't have uh, any sort of like very ambitious plans. Uh, for me, one of the things that I wanted since the beginning, uh, when I was starting with Elixir, I, I was used to go a lot to a mm-hmm. bunch of different events. People would invite me, hey, come talk about Elixir, like Ruby events, Python events, JavaScript mm-hmm. events, .NET events. And uh, I went to a Python one in Brazil and I absolutely loved it. Absolutely mm-hmm. loved it because it was just like this uh, diverse community of mm-hmm. problems and tools where it felt like each talk I would go, I would learn something like completely different. Mm-hmm. And and then, I, and then I was thinking like, you know, like my responsibility, uh, one of the things that we didn't talk about is that Elixir was designed to be like an extensible language. The mm-hmm. idea is that it's a small language where you can get it and extend to new domains and new areas without like having to change the language. Because I was like, you know, I, I don't want to be the bottleneck. If this thing grows, I want everybody to be able yeah. to do what they what they can, right? And today, to the, to the point is that we can actually get a subset of Elixir Compile it to the GPU, which is how mm-hmm. NX works, and it didn't work. It didn't require like zero changes to the language. It shows like nice. the power of like mm-hmm. adapting the language to different domains. So that was the goal. And then I was like, so if Elixir is going to be like a relative like small language that can grow, perhaps like one of my biggest responsibilities is to try to bring it to different domains. Mm-hmm. and support people who are bringing it to different domains. And I knew that web was going to be done because I was coming from Ruby and I mm-hmm. knew that, uh, and I was not even like putting the pressure on myself to do it because I was like, somebody's going to do this because just of the virtue of the people I'm talking to and the communities I go. And Chris McCord did a fantastic uh, uh, work uh, with Phoenix. Uh, he gave a presentation, I think in 2014 and 2015, that it completely blew my mind because yeah, like back we, then, yeah. yeah, because like back then in 2014, 15, uh, people were saying like, Oh, like this is the rails in Elixir. People mm-hmm. are trying to bring those ideas, yeah. but it was literally that like bringing rails to Elixir and yeah. Chris came with a completely different angle. He was actually mm-hmm. like trying to have Elixir in Ruby. Like he was trying to build like real time, uh, tools and platforms and really struggling with making that scale and making that efficient and productive. And then mm-hmm. he was like, and then, and then he looked at the Elixir and he said, oh, wait, I can actually build real-time tools with that. So he thought about first about the whole real-time approach and how it would be to build like real-time applications mm-hmm. on, on the Elixir in the early virtual machine. And then and everything fell from that. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it was it was derived from that. So 
So I always knew web was going to happen. I was not very worried, but I wanted yeah. to expand. And then with time, I, uh, me and like the Elixir core team members were the one that started working on Elixir for like data processing. Mm-hmm. So now we have frameworks like Broadway. There is like the nerves folks, which is using Elixir for like embedded software. And the story there is also very interesting because they are building like this embedded software. And then, uh, and then you're like, oh, okay, I have like a, a small hardware and it has a Wi-Fi thing, but like mm-hmm. the Wi-Fi driver is flaky all the time. Okay. And they were really struggling with that. And when they heard about the, how Erlang is like, is doing the restart stuff, you're mm-hmm. like, oh my God, like, you know, yeah. this will be perfect because when the Wi-Fi thing crashes, I'm just going to restart it again. And then they fell in love with the platform and eventually started using Elixir for that as well. So it just started like naturally just going through things and machine learning. So I thought, you know, my responsibility is to support people doing that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if I feel motivated uh, or if I know how, uh, I, I will help and be part of that too. And with machine learning, um, my thesis uh, when, I, when I did my master of uh, science degree was actually machine learning. I, my degree mm-hmm. is in mechatronic engineering, but okay. engineer, mechatronics is for like undecided people, people who don't know what <laughs> they want to do. But I knew at the end of my degree that I would be programming. Yeah. So I was like, hey, maybe maybe I can do my thesis with the computer science and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. can I, you know? And then they're like, sure, no, mechatronics. We, you know, like everything goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then I did my thesis, but that was before like the deep learning thing. Like mm-hmm. uh, neural networks, they are not mm-hmm. everything that they are today. So, you know, I always had an interest, but I never knew how to get into that. And then, um, and then someone wrote a book. It's a book that I never read and it completely changed my life, (laughs) which is uh, the genetic algorithms uh, with Elixir Mm -hmm. book. And then I was like, hey, somebody's doing that. I'm going to ping that person. I pinged Sean and it changed my life uh, because Mm -hmm. it, you know, we were like, oh, maybe we can make this happen. And then we started talking Mm -hmm. and now we are like here, uh, like... um, Two years later, you have like, you can do with three clicks, you can have like stable diffusion mm-hmm. uh, running on a notebook platform. Like with yeah. three clicks, you can run stable diffusion, put an image, compile code to the GPU and do all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, p- really people like two years ago, they would like say, no, it's just impossible. It's not possible yeah. at all. Uh, Alex is not good for that. And they were like, no, we can do it. And uh, and uh, it's really fun. And I, I think I was just looking at some of the um, NX code samples, and um, I think Elixir as a, as a language as well really lends itself really nicely to you know building out the um, building out you know a network with different layers and those different things. Like it felt really expressive. I've done quite a lot of, of neural networks in Python, and it was it felt straight away like immediately really nice to look at really clear to to read um so i could see how that 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 adoption would work um and it go back exactly to the point which is when i am at the high level if i'm thinking about neural network and the layers i want to compose this in an like it's a declarative thing i want exactly. to compose this in like in an immutable way mm-hmm. like i want the composition to be readable and straightforward mm-hmm. Right, and that's the level we want to be at. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the interesting things here that I found as well. So, obviously, for those of you that know Python, Jupyter notebooks are really like familiar to you in Python. So, rather than writing out, 
you know, programs and then running them. You tend to build these note, these notepads, notebooks that have different sections in that you can execute. When a section's finished, it has state at the end that's persisted. You can, you know, keep running different sections. Um, and that sort of same thing felt very then declarative as well. You know, you would you would write some code, declare that thing, run it, get something, pass it through. And obviously, you know, one of the things that you've been working on as well recently is, I think it's called Livebook. It, it seems very inspired by Jupyter, but it's the same sort of thing, I guess. Like, it pairs very well with that NX stuff. And, but also, I think it's a really interesting paradigm that a lot of, programmers might not have really used if they haven't they haven't used python and jupyter but i think is really powerful yeah and and that um has like interesting distinctions as well because one of the things that people complain a lot about the jupyter notebooks is that they are hard to reproduce because Mm -hmm. your your uh definition was spot on like you have some state you execute a cell in the notebook Mm -hmm. and that updates the state Right. So you have like kind of this global state where everything is and the cells are pretty much like taking things on state, changing mm-hmm. it and putting them back. Yeah. And the issue is that like an, an Jupyter notebook, they, it allows you to execute the cells in any mm-hmm. order, which is very good for experimentation because you don't want to be thinking about things. You just want to fix things fast. Mm-hmm. But later, if you want to reproduce how you got there, mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it's tricky. And that's one of the concerns people people have. And people have like been trying, they are like new, they are like uh, tools or new notebooks that are trying to make uh, Python notebooks reproducible. Mm-hmm. But at the end, you still have mutability. So mm. even those notebooks that they say they are reproducible, if you write like X equals X plus one, and mm-hmm. you start with X equals one, every time you execute it, X is going to increment. Which mm-hmm. means that if I share this notebook with somebody, I'll have to say, hey, you can run all the cells, but the fourth cell, you have to run three times. So X yeah. got to, right? So it's not quite there. Mm-hmm. So in, in Livebook, it, we we don't have this thing. You can think mm-hmm. like the whole execution is sequential. So mm-hmm. like all the cells, one's going to execute like right after the other. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that's going to make it much closer to actually being like fully reproducible. Mm-hmm. And X equals X plus one. If it X is one, it's always going to be true. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many times you evaluate it. But now there's a problem is that if, you, if everything is sequential and you, you want to ch- quickly change something above because it affects the computation at the bottom, you have to reevaluate everything. And if there is mm-hmm. something expensive in the middle, you have to wait for that thing again. So that's mm-hmm. one of the things that we have been trying to see how to address. So we, mm-hmm. we try to be smart and say, look, we see on what those things depend. And if nothing depends on change, we can skip evaluating it because the results are going to be the same. We also added this idea of like branched sections. So if we think a notebook, it's like it has sections, right? Where you naturally break things apart. Mm-hmm. But you can say, hey, I have a session that is going to branch from this one. Mm-hmm. And now those two sections, they can run in parallel. So it's really good for doing improvements. But I think this is like, the discussion today has been like pretty much around mutability and immutability. And I think like, this is a very interesting discussion in the sense of like, well, if I have a tool that's immutable and a tool that is one is mutable and the other is immutable. Mm -hmm. Now we have to also have different visual affordances to work Mm -hmm. with each of them. 
mm-hmm. and that is another interesting uh, aspect to consider. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm looking forward to digging in and playing with it. Um, a question that's sort of been touched on a bit in the chat and I had as well was, so that you've sort of touched on there, you know, NX live books, these are sort of the future, I guess, of Elixir as a, as an ecosystem. What about the future of Elixir as a language itself? Are there, um, any particular things you, you want to add? I know some people ask questions about specifics, but is there anything that's on your radar as things projecting, you know, a year, two, five years down the line that you would love to see in Elixir that aren't there yet? Yeah. So by, by the virtue of like, Elixir being uh, extensible, we mm-hmm. and we want like to be a core that everybody builds on top uh, mm-hmm. of. We we are like um, we don't have like really large plans for the language besides like making things faster, adding an API here and there. That's mm-hmm. the general thing. But mm-hmm. if you go to an Elixir event and mm-hmm. you ask like I, I say this is this is the elephant in the room. If mm-hmm. you ask what do you want to see in Elixir. Like mm-hmm. the majority is going to say a type system. Yeah, right? okay, interesting. So the majority of people. And mm-hmm. like you can check like my uh, keynote at, at Elixir Conference Europe uh, last mm-hmm. year, where I talk exactly about this problem. I think it's mm-hmm. uh, I think it's fine for everybody to want a type system, but mm-hmm. we need to talk about why we want a type system because mm-hmm. going back to the beginning of the conversation, I think people tend to extrapolate what they're going to get mm-hmm. with a type system. And and to be clear, like there are type systems like the Rust type system that is absolutely fantastic mm-hmm. because it's going to guarantee that they're not going to deallocate things twice. Mm-hmm. You're, like there are a bunch of things that is going to guarantee, but those things they are pointless for Elixir. It's a GC mm-hmm. language, right? It's mm-hmm. you know it's not going to affect the Elixir programmers. So we need to think about like. Like what we actually expect mm-hmm. a type system to give us. And for me, it's pretty much about contracts and how mm-hmm. like if you have a, a function as your application grows, like they are, you can have a hundred different things like calling this function directly mm-hmm. or indirectly. And how can you evolve this function over time without breaking the code around it? So it's mostly mm-hmm. about contracts for me mm-hmm. in Elixir. So make it very clear that in Elixir for me, and we have been exploring this. Uh, we have uh, we have a PhD student and a, a researcher. Um, the researcher is Giuseppe Castagna. He has like several papers on typing. Uh, mm-hmm. Guillaume Duboc is the PhD student. And we are going mm-hmm. to have Elixir conference in Europe now in Lisbon in April. And they're going to be sharing, we're going to be sharing updates on that front. Uh, and it has been like really, you know, it has been uh, really interesting, uh, you know, mm-hmm. because one of the things that you have to do is because Elixir is an existing language. Um, the thing about type systems is that they, naturally restrict the kind of code that you can write. Mm-hmm. There are things that are like, look, this makes total sense, but the type system is like, I can't prove it. I can't yeah. prove it or I can't understand it. So you cannot write that. And that's mm-hmm. very problematic in an existing language because mm-hmm. you don't want to break existing software. Yeah, so one of the work that we have to do is to look at everything that you can write in the Elixir today and say, how this becomes like this mathematical theory that is mm-hmm. going to apply to this type system. And that's the work that we have been doing. And it's interesting because like, I think the part of this work is leading to like 
new techniques that have not been published before. So that's yes. very exciting. It's like it's yes. helping, like you know, move the needle a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, but we'll see. I tell I tell people like it's at the very beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. It can still fail. It can be. It can fail in many ways. It can be like, oh, we could only type eighty percent of Elixir, and that's a deal mm-hmm. breaker, right? I don't want to break like. 20% of the software out there. It's not like, it's not like if you type only 80%, it's not that you break 80% of the software out there. It's like you break all the software out there because yeah. you're going to have at least one thing that falls in the 20%, right? Yeah. It can can be that when we implement it, things are slow, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's so much that can go wrong that so I'm like keeping everybody's expectations like very tempered. Like, you know, yeah, uh, we are working hard on it. Like I'm doing like a, honest earnest effort in making this a reality but uh it's work it's like it's a lot of work yeah um so i know one thing that um often is a big advantage of of having typing is things like editor support and um you know all of the stuff that comes with that there's a question in here which i think is relevant to that which is have you got any updates or thoughts on tooling improvements for elixir so they use refactoring typed beam um dialyzer how am i saying that dialyzer some word that's yeah you might know what i mean i don't um what uh so yeah any thoughts on that in general yeah, so uh, we have uh, Elixir language server, uh, mm-hmm. and we have like people, like the community is working on it and making improvements. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that have been hard is that sometimes, like for an Elixir language server, any language server to work, is that mm-hmm. they need to know things really about the detail of the language. Mm-hmm. And to do that, sometimes they would reach out to private APIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, not supposed to, but, you know, you want to make the thing work. I, I understand, like, the, the, the conflict in there. Um, and then we would re- release a new Elixir version that would change those mm-hmm. private APIs because they are private, and that would break the tools. So it, it could lead, like, to a frustrating experience. So we mm-hmm. have been uh, trying to incorporate some of those concepts and ideas uh, mm-hmm. into the language. Mm-hmm. Um so, um, so yeah, we are trying to improve there, but a lot of it, like, try to provide more of a foundation, but the mm-hmm. end goal is more for the community to pick up. Uh, mm-hmm. Lifebook has also been very interesting because it's like uh, my team at Dashbit has been working on it, and we want to have, like, all those tools as well, auto-completion, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it has been interesting to, like, feel that experience, like, closer to to you know to feel the needs like closer closer to home close to the heart Mm -hmm. and improve that but yeah that's something that we are always improving but i think there is still a lot that we can improve but we are working on it and if we have types it's 100 percent right like we'll be able to improve things like really a lot more Yeah. yeah yeah um so Cool. I'm going to go through a few more of these questions. Um, if you have any questions, please just do put them in the chat on YouTube or on Twitch. Um, I'm just going to try and split them. They're generally into three different areas so far, the questions we've had. Uh, one area is about the language itself. One area is about learning the language um, or learning just in general. And the other one is around um, industry growth, Elixir adoption, that sort of stuff. So I'm going to try and loosely split them to that. I'll carry on firstly just with questions around sort of things to expect from the language. So one of the um, first questions is uh, from Burkhan. He says, uh, hi, I'm new to Elixir. Is there a plan to add an HTTP client to the standard library? 
Um, no, not today's standard library. We have this rule that um, we only add. So if you go to the website, there is a development page, uh, a development like in the sidebar. There's like development that kind of outlines again, like with the goal of like keeping the language like um, you know the core small. Um, yeah. it, the rule is like we only add things that we we need that are going to be elevated by being the language itself. It's like mm -hmm. by being the language itself, it could it could uh, leverage properties that as a library, it could not, which is, mm. there is not a big, there's not a lot of possibilities in there because the language was designed to be extensible. So there yeah. are like very few things that would like justify like crossing that gap. And mm -hmm. an HTTP library, uh, I don't think it would, it would do oh. that. Uh, even though like we have, we have like a low level HTTP library uh, mm -hmm. was created by members of the Elixir team because we had ideas on how to make it better. And then higher level libraries was create work were, were created uh, on top mm -hmm. of it. Uh, but yeah. we don't plan to tackle that un unless something changes and we feel like there is a unique aspect. I also want to say that my experience with, uh, with other standard libraries is that they usually get out of date. Like in mm -hmm. the sense that um, eventually the community evolves and the way, and somebody has like a very neat, unique idea of how to do an HTTP client mm -hmm. that, and that thing grows and eventually the HTTP client library that is in the language uh, falls out of flavor and then you end up getting to a point where everybody say, oh, don't use that. Use this library mm -hmm. that is much better. And uh, my that has been like uh, the case in my experience. Uh, maybe, you know, but it can be, uh, that can happen for like a lot of reasons. Maybe they want this on the library they were not good in the first place. So one of the things that I'm excited, you know, maybe in five years uh, from now, which is like Go, which is a new language that has like an HTTP client, mm -hmm. like go there and try to assess, like how is the Go community happy with, yeah, yeah, yeah. with how awesome. things are? Or mm -hmm. did, you know, basically I want to validate if this is still going to be, continue to be true, or there is a chance for for like, hey, actually do an HTTP client in the standard library that people mm -hmm. are not going to curse 15 years from now. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, Dizziness asks, do you know when Phoenix 1.7 will be out? Uh, Chris has a, Chris has a saying, what is it? It's going to be out when it's out or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. This is, uh, this is a question for the Phoenix team to answer, but, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's pretty soon because, you know, the release candidates out, the feedback has been like, um, fantastic. And mm -hmm. one of the things, so for those who are not familiar, uh, a little bit of context is uh, Phoenix is our web framework. Mm -hmm. And two, three years ago, like Chris gave a presentation of this thing called Phoenix Live View, which is a way of like building uh, interactive real-time applications without having to write JavaScript. Uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's how it's summarized. And that like kind of like, uh, you know, like that caused a lot of, brought a lot of attention uh, to mm -hmm. Phoenix and to Elixir. And a lot of people, they started like uh, implementing uh, live view like solutions 
in, in other languages. But the thing is that LiveView really leverages the ability of their mm-hmm. own virtual machine, uh, of, of like having many things running at once or running in a cluster, mm-hmm. right? So, so that happened and LiveView has kind of like, so there was Phoenix, which is a web framework. And then there was like LiveView, like bring, brewing all those new ideas on how it is to write like real time interactive apps on the server in, mm-hmm. in this decade, right? So we have been brewing a lot of ideas and now we are finally like kind of merging those things. Okay. So we have been like really careful to like get everything right and make mm-hmm. sure that all the experiences are good because it's several experiences, right? It's like, you can be building a real time app. It can be building like, just like a, a regular real, uh, HTML app. We say now, like it's a, it's a dead app because the other yeah. is live view. So now we have like the yeah. dead views. You can be building an API. So we are, you know, the team is being really careful to make sure that, uh, when we will unify, it's a unification where we're really unifying things. And not that we have like now three things that they all feel yeah. like disconnect and disjoint. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of important work uh, being done there. Nice. Um, there's a question from uh, George about your opinion on the Ash framework. Oh, no um, yeah, there's a, a Ash framework, which is, yeah, I don't even, my answer was going to be, I haven't used it to have an opinion. Mm-hmm. So I don't even want to be the person who is going to, because I already yeah. did it once. I summarized it in the wrong way. So yeah, <laughs> so check like Ash framework for Elixir and people can check it out. Okay. But I haven't really used it to build uh, a, a strong opinion. And I don't want to go like by first impressions. Or sure. um, are there any uh, other languages that are particularly interesting to you at the moment? Either Beam or not Beam. I'm interested in both. Oh, that's a question that... um, I can tell you that we have the creator of Gleam in the chat, and we also have someone that works at Unison in the chat. So um, if you want to shout about Unison or Gleam, that would be a really good way of picking yourself up. Yeah, no, Gleam, uh, it's definitely... uh, I'm not following anything close, so I can Mm -hmm. give like... um, But, you know, like, but whenever there's a Gleam announcement, I'm going to read, I'm really interested in the work of kind of like uh, pioneering in a way, like type language uh, mm-hmm. on the beam. We had had other approaches before, but I think Gleam is the one that has been the most successful uh, mm-hmm. uh, so far. So that has been like really interesting. We have mm-hmm. others like um, Caramel, which is like Ocamel on Erlang, mm-hmm. like Homer, mm-hmm. uh, which is Haskell in Erlang. There have been a lot of approaches, but I think Gleam was the one that has been able to push uh, the farthest. Mm-hmm. And so I'm checking, I'm interested. I was actually reading about uh, Unison as well, mm-hmm. uh, like a couple weeks ago, but I was like on my first read and I I feel like I have to give uh, two additional reads to have like yeah, things yeah, yeah, yeah. Far more in place. Not because it's hard, just to be clear, mm-hmm. uh, not, but more, mostly to like... There's a lot of uh, new stuff in there. It's, it's different yeah. ways of thinking about stuff. Yeah. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar, Unison's very focused on distributed um, distributed programming. It's, it's a really interesting new approach. We have both a Gleam and a Unison track on Xism if you want to learn either of them. Yeah, um, and it's very interesting because, uh, again, I don't want to go by first impression, so if I say mm-hmm. something wrong, I apologize, but uh, one of the ideas in Unison is about like... Uh, 
content addressing code, like a mm-hmm. code is referenced by like its digest. Mm-hmm. And Joe Armstrong, the creator of Erlang, mm-hmm. he was used to talk uh, about that all the time, right? So I, I don't know if the creators of uh, Unisar are aware of that, but uh, he was uh, really fascinated by this idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but I think mm-hmm. he would he would love like Unisar yeah, yeah. see people exploring those ideas because uh, if he had a chance to grab someone, he would definitely talk about this. I think he even has, he mentioned in some talks uh, how that would solve uh, many problems. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a question from Rebecca, Rebecca from Unison um, here, which is, um, what were some of the hurdles in driving Elixir's industry adoption? Um, and how have you overcome them? And how are you continuing to overcome them? So here's the thing. I, I don't know. Okay. Mm-hmm. I like those things they are very hard to measure. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it, and to, to get like, uh, 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 like a grasp and an understanding of what is happening mm-hmm. there because, you know, it's just so, so large. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I usually do is that, uh, I, I, I always tell about what I worked on and what I did, mm-hmm. right? So and so, if you think maybe you don't think that Elixir is successful, and that's fine. So the, those <laughs> lessons they probably are not going to be useful to you. But if you think that there is some sort of uh, success in there, uh, mm-hmm. what was very important for us at the beginning was like the getting started experience, right? So mm-hmm. if you look at Elixir, Elixir is a language that is functional. Everything is immutable. Uh, it's also good for writing concurrent software. It's also uh-huh. good for writing like distributed applications. And that's an area that most people, they and also fault-tolerant systems, right? And like uh-huh. mainstream languages, the languages that are people are learning in courses, in university, they are not exploring those aspects, uh-huh. right? So it's very important for you to focus on that getting started experience, mm-hmm. focusing on, uh, on like small wins, like having a way mm-hmm. that people, you know, if you're going to give a presentation, I always used to speak about Elixir a lot at events. Mm-hmm. If you go to a presentation and you talk something, you want people to go home, follow a tutorial or install something that they can just say, hey, create a new app and mm-hmm. get a small victory out of that. Mm-hmm. So that's like, and very important, like right? So the getting mm-hmm. started material, the getting started experience. So Elixir, we are very focused on documentation. A lot of people say that uh, Elixir is has the best documentation of all programming languages mm-hmm. they use. It's a consequence of that because you know, like mm-hmm. um, you know, we are we are always like very close of missing somebody, of somebody losing interest, right? Mm-hmm. Be- exactly because it's different. So mm-hmm. we need to make sure that. Like, you know, that we need to reduce the chance of failure, basically, right? Yeah. Somebody described this as like, we want to have like pits of success where people, they are like mm-hmm. falling to those pits of success mm-hmm. one after the other. And uh, and that's what we did and what we really focused on. So like documentation tool being first class since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really love XDoc, which are documentation generator. All the documentations of all the projects in the ecosystem they are hosted in a single place. We recently mm-hmm. added it and learning. It's like you need tutorials, you need API reference. We easily added to the documentation generator tool a way of having cheat sheets. So like any mm-hmm. library author can now easily create a cheat sheet with Markdown right. 
and that gets published. Somebody can print it, put on their wall, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, really enabling that area. And that's, and that's, you know, and people take it from there. Uh, and also mm-hmm. hearing, listening to feedback from the community. One of the things that was very interesting is that at the beginning, um, so like cold formatter, we have a cold formatter in Elixir. And at the beginning, nobody cared about it. Everybody's like, you know, fine, you know. It's yeah. no, but as Elixir started to grow, uh, people were starting working on the team. And then they realized that they were reviewing a pull request and they were like bike shedding on like uh, format mm-hmm. and this kind of stuff. And then the, the community was like, we need a way to standardize things. Like this mm-hmm. is, and they wanted like, they wanted me to write a style guide because people were considering the way I write. To mm-hmm. be, to be like, should be canonical. Kind of canonical yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, I don't want to write a style guide because I don't necessarily think my style is the best. Yeah. Right. But, uh, and then there was like this push. So also like, as you grow and the teams grow, we are going to have like different pains that are going to start showing up as well. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to start here. Hey, somebody's is your programming language and they have a project with 2000 files. And now yeah. you have like different kind of compiler optimizations mm-hmm. and that's all part of the journey. I think there's a, a follow on question as well from, from Tim, which segues nicely here. So, um, Tim is, is one of the, um, people behind the Elixir track on Exism. Um, did a huge amount of work on it during the pandemic, especially. And uh, Tim's introduced Elixir into his company where he works, and they've got like a couple of little apps in there. But he was sort of really wants to get um, more adoption in the company, and he, he was asking how you how you would recommend going like trying to increase that adoption. Um, what where do you think? And there's been similar questions in the chat. Like where do you think the sort of the lowest hanging fruits are to get quick wins with Elixir? to to prove the business like the business case of elixir why it's a valuable thing and i guess that's linked to what rebecca's asking as well because you know if unison can prove this is a really valuable little use of unison then that's how you sort of like a trojan horse get it into a company and then and then people can use it so i'm actually not sure how to answer that because mm-hmm. i think at the end of the day um technically technically better uh, mm-hmm. for a certain problem is not uh, uh, is not an indicator that is going to be used or picked, mm-hmm. right? Like, even if you can get everybody to agree that something is, like, mm-hmm. technically better or better suited to solve a certain problem, mm-hmm. um, you know, people, they can still find, like, several non-technical reasons and very valuable to, mm-hmm. to to not do that, right? Uh, technical and non-technical reasons, right? So, um, so I'm not necessarily sure if that's the uh, the best way to approach it. Again, like I'm really not sure. It's really mm-hmm. just in this case, it's just really just like one person's opinion. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think like what I see a lot of people talking about. It's like the best way to go forward. Is mm-hmm. to is to grow a community, like even a mm-hmm. community inside work, and getting mm-hmm. people excited about it. Because um, I think that at the end of the day, that they actually have a, a stronger impact on mm-hmm. on adoption. And then it goes back to everything you said. Like, 
one of the ways that you can get people excited about Elixir is talking about everything that is is really good at, and that's yeah. how it can be how people are going to get excited about Unison mm-hmm. and Gleam, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's to talk about the technical features, but mm-hmm. it's probably more of a mean to an end than the end, mm-hmm. if that makes mm-hmm. any sense, right? So, yeah, I remember when I remember when Elixir first came out, it was. It was your excitement about it that was contagious to people. Like you'd be at a Ruby conference, and there was a, there was a you know a palpable excitement about Elixir. But a lot of that came from you, from your personality, and you know. And I guess it's it's having for Rebecca, it's having those champions that are out there in unison. And, you know, Rebecca's someone who's also really fun to talk to, and you know, it's exciting when Rebecca's chatting about unison. Her excitement is is palpable for that as well. But you know, maybe that's the same for for Tim in a company. And like you said, finding those champions, those communities who they feel excited enough that almost they're willing to take a bit of a risk themselves in in, in getting it out there. Um, yeah, so like, you know, I don't know what people do nowadays, uh, but like meetups, uh, book clubs, like uh, joint leads, yeah. like, uh, I don't know if you have Twitch like streams. private leaderboards on exorcism where you can do as a team and work yeah. on the on the things together. Those can be, I so I feel like the community building aspect can play like yeah. a, a, a very big role. And by the way, thank you team uh, for maintaining yeah. the Elixir track. I um, don't need to forget that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, he will appreciate that. He actually changed from being a full-time nurse to a full-time developer during the pandemic. And uh, a big part of his route was to make the Elixir track along with Angelico and a couple of other people on. on and that, that was how he got his job, was uh, was sort of proving himself as a developer through building that. So Tim's got a really cool story. Um, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, that's it really is. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, a couple of uh, just a couple more technical questions. I know we're hitting the hour and a half mark, and I'm sure you're going to be exhausted before long. So, um, but there was uh, one here, which is, what do you think of immutable data stores um, like Event Store with Elixir? Um, not really familiar to have an opinion, okay. but I think. Uh, Again, I think I'm not 100% sure, but mm-hmm. I think almost all aren't all almost all databases immutable in the write ahead mm-hmm. log. Like mm-hmm. they have this thing that is immutable that they only append information and what you yeah. see is the is the result of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think like uh, some of the vetted ideas um, it comes out of like turning the database inside out and putting the the log first. So mm-hmm. I I I I don't know a lot about this topic to have like mm-hmm. strong opinions, but I know there are people in the Elixir community that cares about it. There is mm-hmm. the commanded library uh, that is trying to approach those things as well. So hopefully you can take like this information and um, get started on that side of the community and Elixir and explore a bit mm-hmm. further. Nice. Um, and we've talked about types a lot, but the, uh, another question here from Boris on that. Um, how much benefit would a type system bring over the type specs that are currently in Elixir? So uh, what I saw, a little bit of context, Elixir has this idea of type specs, which is very mm-hmm. similar to like annotations in Python. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, but they're like just annotations and mm-hmm. you have to use a separate tool to like mm-hmm. give you reports. And this tool is mm-hmm. called Dialyzer, is the one that came up a little bit earlier. Um, and my saying is, if we had a Dialyzer, so Dialyzer mm-hmm. makes like some specific design decisions, but mm-hmm. my saying was that if we had a Dialyzer that 
ran all the time. It was not separate. Mm -hmm. uh, and it had like uh, good error messages that wouldn't really be like a massive improvement to users. So mm -hmm. I'm hoping that we can get at least that. For me, that would be like mm -hmm. one of the one of the minimum things that we want. And one of the things that I have been working with, you know, in, in, that I have, we have discuss, been discussing in relation to the type system work is exactly mm -hmm. uh, how can we get the benefits of the type system without users having to write a single line of code? It's something mm -hmm. that we have been working really hard because I don't want to say like, hey, here's a type system. Now everybody go and write different annotations, add types, yeah. you know. So we are really thinking about like this uh, gradual adoption. Um, mm -hmm. But we'll see. It's still, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, hopefully in five years, uh, in three to five years, if it all works out, uh, we are going. you're going to have like the answers for yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. See how it plays out. Um, and then two more questions that I'm summarizing a whole lot of other questions. One is from people who are looking to get jobs as Elixir developers. Um, and there's sort of two sets of questions. One about people who are saying, how do I learn Elixir to go and get a job? Obviously, my answer is you go on to Xism and do lots of exercises, um, do our track and then, and then build out some fun projects for yourself. But um, yeah, any thoughts you have on that? And, and also people saying that they seem a lot of Elixir jobs seem to be quite like senior. Um, they don't seem any junior Elixir jobs, any tips or hints on that? So anything around Elixir jobs really, Jesse? Yeah, so uh, the learning, you know, exercise, go to the website as well. We mm -hmm. have a bunch of references in there and, mm -hmm. uh, and join the community. There's also Elixir Forum mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah, join the community. Yeah. And the jobs thing, uh, I think that's very, it's a very correct assessment that there is like this mm -hmm. preference for senior, but that's because mm -hmm. Elixir, like most people who have learned Elixir in the past, they mm -hmm. have done so um, coming from other languages. And mm -hmm. even our, our getting started guide, it's like, it's doing the assumption that, you know, you had some programming experience because like say, oh, this is a string. We don't explain mm -hmm. what is a string, right? Mm -hmm. We say it's a string. It's expecting that you have like some familiarity or like integers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what mm -hmm. is an integer? What is a float, right? If you never programmed before, it's like, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, you, you know better than me, right? Oh, yeah, so, no, I mean, it's ridiculous how, how, how confused, like, people don't understand anything at the first at all. Like, it's, yeah. Yeah, so, so, and I think, like, this had, like, to a position where people are like, oh, like, because they were mostly senior, and also, like, mm -hmm. most of my talks is about, like, how I have been through pains of, like, mutable code, of, like, yeah. lack of concurrency. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes, like, a lot of people we would attract people who have identified with those pains. So have, mm -hmm. those are people who have been developing for a while. Mm -hmm. So I think we, we were like this community that is senior, but I think like this is not like, we don't want to be like that in the long term. Mm -hmm. uh, and the community realized that I think about two years ago, we started to have more of those discussions mm -hmm. um, that we really need to make Elixir more accessible. So mm -hmm. people, and I hope like Livebook, it's also helping that direction by, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, because even like, how do we install Elixir? It's like, oh, open up your terminal. If I never programmed it before, it's like, what is a terminal, yeah. right? So uh, with Livebook, you just like install an app and you have Elixir running. So we have been like working hard on this problem. And then we also have to start, like the companies have to start like, uh, 
changing their mindsets and for their own good, to be honest, that, you mm -hmm. know, you're not going to be fine. You're not going to be fine in senior engineers for, for everything, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, six months ago, it was like uh, everybody was hiring across all the mm -hmm. stacks. Everybody wanted to hire. Now we are going for some layoffs. We are going to see where it's going to land. But I think it's just, you know, like uh, it's a matter of time to everybody go back. Like, hey, everybody wants to mm -hmm. hire kind of mm -hmm. state uh and yeah and i think you have to learn as a company how to grow your team and how to bring pe uh uh people to where you want to be uh mm -hmm. and 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 that's something that i tell explicitly to the elixir companies right so people who are here use the elixir production and if you did like that job posting you know like mm -hmm. we're looking for a senior engineer like Ask yourself, how can we change this? What would be necessary yeah. for us to to go slightly different about this? Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, maybe Team Star is going to be very interesting to hear as well because mm -hmm. it seems he went through this yeah, yeah, right yeah. in the last yeah. uh, two years. So mm -hmm. um, that would yeah. be something very interesting yeah. to hear. Yeah. Um, and that's a great answer. Thank you. There's another question um, as a penultimate one, which is... Um, if somebody is interested in writing their own programming language, um, any tips, hints, books? I've got um, just grabbing this off my bookshelf. Um, I'd highly recommend reading this book, which is called Crafting Interpreters. I don't know if that's the right way around or not on the camera. Yeah, but, no, it's, uh, it's great. It's absolutely brilliant book. I'd highly recommend to anyone out there. But yeah, any any resources you would recommend? Um, yeah, yeah let, let me tell you what I did. Uh, that's cool, yeah, yeah. Everyone runs to bookshelves and grabs their favorite yeah, books no, on these projects. I Hold on, I'm almost, almost here. <laughs> We're going to be putting a um, series of videos together as well, Erxism, um, as we build out this new beginner programming language that we're building out this year. So um, if anyone watching this is interested in that, you can keep an eye out and we'll have a, a video series coming a bit later. But yeah, you go, Josie. Yeah, so I bought this book. Mm. It's the classic compiler's book. You can see it's very thick. Yeah. And I read about 30 pages of it. So <laughs> this is not the thing that helped me. <laughs> uh, um, so the question is, uh, it's actually, the answer is going to be like the consultant answer is that it depends because mm -hmm. it depends a lot on what you want to target. If you say like, look, mm -hmm. I want to target JavaScript, you're going to make mm -hmm. certain decisions and different approaches, or if you want to target an existing uh, virtual machine. Uh -huh. A lot of what people use today is that they use LLVM as well, and that's going to be a different part. So that's like the compiler side of things. Uh -huh. And and then there's like the high level, which is like, well, the programming language is text, right? How uh -huh. does it become a bunch of zeros and ones? So like you have like to tokenize, like, you know, if you say like full space bar, that's two tokens, full and bar. And then you have something that builds a tree and you compile that. That's the general flow. But I've basically went by like, um, you know, look at what other people were doing. And then I would buy a book, read one chapter. And that one chapter would give me ideas of things to try out. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm trying restarting my camera, but... <laughs> This has been a great analogy for um, for fault tolerance throughout this. Yeah. I, like, I feel like this is a feature that you had. It'll yeah, probably come back. I, I think when I turn it off here in the in the 
in, in, on Riverside, it doesn't turn it off because the lights mm-hmm. still on. So I would need a way to like effectively turn it off, but I don't know how to do that. I'm going to be a little bit out of focus. Uh, now I'm very sorry. Yeah. So right. don't worry, we've only got like two minutes left. You can be blurry for the last two minutes. It's, um, oh, it's absolutely- okay. oh, there we go. Magic that came back. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. About there, yeah, there's a point where if you just, yeah, just slip back like once, that's it, perfect. You just have to hover there for the whole of the rest of it and not, um, yeah. Cool. You were, um, I think you were saying, uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think we went through it with the book. I just like yeah, went yeah. around, tried basically things. go and play and have fun. Yeah, and, yeah, saw 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 other languages that target to that same platform yeah. and so on. And then there's sorry, and then there's this whole other aspect, which is like which features you want to have in your programming language, yeah. which is which is very fun, but yeah. also like very very like daunting, like keeping how all those things fit together, and if you can have like reasonable explanations i always so for me i always like um i like to do like a lot of like uh ddd or rdd which is like documentation driven development or readme driven development so i always think about because of the focus on documentation i always think about how i'm going to explain things and Uh depending on how i'm explaining things if, if things like they make sense. Sometimes I would like not implement a feature at the moment because I did not know how to write the documentation. Mm, and I was like, you know, right. It's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and that's also part of the concept, but it's, it's really, really fun. And mm-hmm. like when the higher level you go, so like, Oh, I'm going to compile to JavaScript that is going to force some choices on you. Like, Oh, you're not mm-hmm. going to worry about concurrency anymore because you're focusing on JavaScript. Uh, and then if you say, look, uh, Erlang VM, is going to give a bit more options. Java, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Java VM is going to give more. And then if you go to our VM, you have a really, uh, really like uh, large spread of options that you can consider yeah. when designing the language. Nice. Okay. Last question. It's a fun one. Um, uh, was there ever a moment where you just sort of woke up and went, holy crap, Elixir has turned into a big deal? Uh, not, not really. I, I, I've always tried to be like very detached from Mm -hmm. Elixir growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think I tell it was like for, um, (laughs) I tell it for, it was for like, uh, like, like mental health like reasons yeah yeah yeah. you don't just be constantly watching the numbers go up yeah yeah and uh i also didn't want in a way like in a purist way i didn't want just to be like oh it's not working out like maybe i should make Mm -hmm. things mutable right yeah yeah, yeah. you want to stick to your principles on it yeah yeah so i've always tried to be uh 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 uh, detached like from those things uh, that's my interpretation. Uh, my mother will just say that I have a cold heart, and that's <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but that's my interpretation of things. So it, it's it's great in a way. Like if things went terribly south, I because mm-hmm. like working on a programming language, it's like it's it's a really like large effort. It's like it's yeah. a lot of work. Uh, I don't think I would do it again in this lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's a lot of work, and I knew so. Like when I first went to like my co-founders at the company I was at and say like, Hey, can mm-hmm. I work on this? You know, like <laughs> part-time. And then they're like, cool. Like how long is it going to take? I'm like, you know, 
three yeah. if we are optimistic, hours, week, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right so it's like you know you, you have to be careful like so you don't put like you know like three years of your life it's a lot of work exactly. it's just something that at the end may not go anywhere mm-hmm. right uh you're gonna do it because you're enjoying it it's got a not just for the end result yeah, exactly. So, so I said at the beginning, that I don't have like a lot of ambition and a mm. lot of like expectations. And I think that's also like part of that. Like when at the beginning, when I went to speak, I had some goals like, oh, I want to speak. So uh, when I started working on Elixir, like part time, I had the goal. We had uh, a strange loop event it's going to be the last edition of the event. Uh, this year and they have like a an emerging languages conference and I said mm-hmm. I want to speak there and then got to that goal uh, and, but for me it was like look I'm going to come here if I get one person excited about this mm. to go and talk to other people then I like Definitely. I'm winning because yeah. now it's yeah. two right yeah exactly. uh, you <laughs> yes, right so um, that's kind of how I I approach this mm-hmm. but there is also like the traumatizing part of all of this, which is I uh, I, I don't want people to think that I'm paranoid or crazy uh, in, mm. in, in like a weird way. It's it's a uh, and it's like um, sometimes like out of nowhere, like I'm taking a shower or I'm brushing mm-hmm. my teeth before I sleep. Like there is this question that pops to my head, which mm-hmm. is. Is anyone using it in production? <laughs> Which due to how many times like I have been asked that in my lifetime, especially during yeah. like the early years. Like mm-hmm. I, I swear, it just pops out of nowhere. Like to mm-hmm. the point that now, like when it pops, like at the beginning, it would pop, and I was like, you know, like no, not yeah. at the beginning, like two years ago, it would pop. Yeah. I, I would be like, you know, like. Yeah. Sure. Like, which kind of stupid question is that? Like, 